venture a guess. Venture a guess that everybody sitting here this morning has had a time or some times in their life that they wish they could go back and do something different than they did. Go through a moment where you made a choice or did something or said something. Wish you could go back and redo that. Now, in golf, they call that a mulligan. So you're at the tee and you just shank a shot over into the next fairway, like not yours, but somebody else's. Somebody's like, dude, take a mulligan, redo that. Wouldn't it be nice if life had mulligans? I'd like to do that over, like maybe not shoot a bird that's sitting on your grandma's fins or something like that. Not that I know anything about that, but anyway. A mulligan, give it another try. Do it over and act like that first time never happened. Man, that'd be great, wouldn't it? As we move into Jonah chapter 3 this morning, Jonah gets a mulligan. Verse 1, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying. Now, before we really get into what's going on here in this chapter, I think it's important for us to see and to know how this book is laid out. Of course, the original book, um, narrative would not have been laid out in chapters, right? It was just one flowing thing. We put the chapters in later just to make it easier to reference and go here. But in chapter 1, God called Jonah. Jonah said no, ran away. And we see Jonah's interaction with some pagans. He was on a boat with a bunch of unbelieving sailors who ended up having to throw him overboard. And afterward, those unbelievers became believers. It says they prayed to God, they feared the Lord, they offered sacrifices to God, and made vows. The, the unbelieving pagans become believing followers of God. And so unbelievers became believers. Then in chapter 2, we saw Jonah talking to God from the belly of the fish that had swallowed him. Now, as we move into chapter 3, interestingly enough, we're going to see Jonah interacting with a bunch of pagans. Who? end up believing in God. And when we move into chapter 4, Lord willing, next week, we're going to see Jonah and God having a conversation. Okay, so very symmetrical here. Uh, there's some very purposeful balance and parallelism in this little book. And, and I just say that because it's going to be important to see the differences in how the pagans respond to God and how Jonah does between chapters 1 and 2 and then in chapters 3 and 4. We saw Jonah say no to God's go in chapter 1, but then we saw and heard him worship and praise God in his prayer in chapter 2 because he had been delivered, because he had been saved. But again, ultimately, remember, this book is not ultimately about Jonah. Who is this book about? It starts with G and rhymes with Oz. Okay? This book is ultimately about God. Okay? So when we see the interaction between the pagans and God in chapter 1, Jonah and God in chapter 2, the pagans and God in chapter 3, and then Jonah and God in chapter 4, remember who's driving this bus. Remember what's ultimately going on, and this is ultimately about the person, work, actions, and character of God. 
important as we move forward, especially today and next week as well. So, we need to see what God is doing as a matter of first importance as we go through here. So in chapter 1 again, God commissioned Jonas in a storm on the sea when Jonah ran from him. In chapter 2, God heard Jonah's prayer. He receives praise and then speaks to the fish that swallowed Jonah, directing it to vomit Jonah up on the dry land. And here, in the first verse of chapter 3, the focus is on who again? It's on God, afresh and anew, as he, God, sends his word to Jonah, the text says, a second time. Now, God had told Jonah in Jonah 1, verses 1 and 2, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So God's direction was for Jonah to go to Nineveh and call out against it, because their evil had, quote, come up before God. But Jonah ran from that call, and here, after a dramatic and traumatic supernatural storm, near-death experience, and having been swallowed by a great fish and then vomited out of that fish after three days and nights, after all of that, God sends his word to Jonah again. Now, there's a little bit to marvel at there, right? We tend to cast people off. Well, you didn't do what I asked you to do. We tend to dismiss them and say, oh, well, you won't listen. I'll pick somebody else. And look what God has done. God has gone to great lengths, great lengths, not to God, but to us, to make sure that Jonah goes to Nineveh and proclaims the message that God has told Jonah to proclaim in Nineveh. So, after all of that, God sends his word to Jonah again. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah, and I love those three words, the second time. It's like a mulligan. Anybody ever been disobedient and think you've been disqualified from God's service? Seems to me that consistently through Scripture, consistently in my life, the word of the Lord comes the second time. And we're thankful for that. Now what, what word is this that God sends to and through Jonah again. It's pretty much the same as we saw uh, back in chapter 1, but verse 2 here in chapter 3, Arise, God says, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So God tells Jonah again to arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Now that part of the message is exactly the same as the first part of the message that in chapter 1 that God had given to Jonah. God is directing Jonah again to go to the Assyrian royal city of Nineveh, that great city, God says. Now, we talked a little bit in the introductory message, and again in chapter 1, of who the Assyrians and the Ninevites were. So Assyria was the kingdom. Nineveh was a great city in the kingdom. At this point in history, it's not real clear, but it's not thought that at this point in history that Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. It would become the capital at a later time. But it was at least a royal city that had palaces there for the king to come and visit and stay when he was there. And we had said before that Jonah was resistant to go to Nineveh for three good reasons, I think. A, or one, Assyria was the looming military threat against Israel this time. Some even say that Israel may have been paying tribute to Assyria at this time. The second reason Jonah didn't want to go, Jonah was a racist. 
Okay? And we'll see that next week really in full bloom. And the third reason was Jonah knew that God was prone to graciously forgive and show mercy to people whom he had pronounced coming woes upon. Now this Jonah, who had just been delivered by God's grace, is hesitant to go to Nineveh because he, know that he knows that God is prone to show grace. But it's real easy to throw rocks at Jonah. But let me read you a couple of snippets that might help you understand Jonah's hesitation a little more. Okay? This is from Tim Keller's book, The Prodigal Prophet. Quote, After capturing enemies, the Assyrians would typically cut off their legs and one arm, leaving the other arm in hand so they could shake the victim's hand in mockery as he was dying. They forced friends and family members to parade with the decapitated heads of their loved ones elevated on poles. They pulled out prisoners' tongues and stretched their bodies with ropes so they could be flayed alive and their skins displayed on city walls. They burned adolescents alive. Those who survived the destruction of their cities were fated to endure cruel and violent forms of slavery. The Assyrians have been called a terrorist state. End of quote. Now, from John MacArthur's message on Jonah, this is a little bit lengthy, not too much, but stay with me. MacArthur says, Nineveh is on the banks of the Tigris River, I would think 500 miles northeast of Israel. According to historians' magnificent walls, the inner city was surrounded by eight miles of walls. The rest of the city had a circumference that extended to 60 miles around, a very large metropolis. The name Nineveh is thought to have derived from Ninus, which would derive from Nimrod and means the residence of Nimrod or Nunu. Nunu, by the way, in Akkadian means fish. So maybe this was Fishtown, which would be an appropriate name. Why would they call the town Fishtown if it was 500 miles from the water? Well, because they worshipped the fish god Nanshi, the daughter of Ea, the fish goddess of fresh water. And they also worshipped the fish god Dagon, who had the head of a fish and the body of a man. Fish were of particular importance to the Ninevites, freshwater fish and these fish gods. So when Jonah arrives, he had a good fish story for fish town. And some historians actually think that he may have well looked like an albino because the fish's stomach acids may have bleached his skin so that he arrives in Nineveh with a distinctly white, almost ghostly appearance to tell his fish story. So a couple of things that we see there. First of all, these Ninevites, these Assyrians, were not nice people by and large as far as what they're known for. And they worship a fish god, which is not the true god, obviously. And so we might understand maybe why Jonah is a little bit hesitant to go there. And to hear God say, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, probably set his spine to tingling and his teeth to gritting. And while we've said that Jonah didn't want to go there because he didn't like them, it makes a little more sense as to why. And it would be understandable that maybe there was some fear involved as well. Imagine getting a call from God today and saying, I want you to go to Kabul in Afghanistan. That's basically what Jonah is experiencing here. 
We surely harbor some anger and distaste for that place and the Taliban there, and I'd say there would be some fear involved if we were to march through Kabul today, saying, yet 40 days in Kabul shall be overthrown. And God knows what's going on in Nineveh. He knows who they worship, what they worship. By the way, he knows what's going on in Kabul as well. And he knows these things, and he's got a message that he wants to get to that great city, to these fish worshipers who peel people's skin off and display it on their city wall. And here in verse 2, God says that his message is for Jonah to go and call out against this city the message that I tell you. So whatever God wants Jonah to say is to be called out against none of his people. And God had made it clear in chapter 1 that it was because their evil had come up before him. And we mentioned that earlier in, in previous messages. And while Jonah would surely love to proclaim woe upon them, remember, God is prone to forgive people, he warns, of impending doom. God is prone to give mulligans, even to bad people. And Jonah knows that too. And that's why he ran in chapter 1, and we'll see that next week spelled out more clearly. But here in chapter 3, we see a different response from Jonah. Verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. It's like you just want to stop and clap. Like, yes, I'm here. <laughs> According to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. It only took three chapters, right? To see Jonah say okay to God's command. But it's good to see it anyway. Even if it is on the second day, not even if it was a mulligan. Sometimes people in the golf world have shot incredible shots on that second shot, right? Jonah's obedient here. So he arose, instead of going down, and he did so according to the word of the Lord. God said go, and Jonah said okay this time. He didn't say no. Now the text says Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. That's not a minor detail, nor is it the first time that we've seen it. Warren Wiersbe explains this way. Four times in this book, Nineveh is called a great city. Chapter 1, verse 2, chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, and then chapter 4, verse 11. And archaeologists tell us that the adjective is well-deserved. It was great in history, having been founded in ancient times by Noah's great-grandson Nimrod. It was also great in size. The circumference of the city and its suburbs was 60 miles. And from the Lord's statement in Jonah 4, 11, which we'll see next week, we could infer that there was probably over 600,000 people living there. One wall of the city had a circumference of eight miles around and boasted 1,500 towers. He goes, he goes on to say, The city was great in splendor and influence, being one of the leading cities of the powerful Assyrian Empire. It was built near the Tigris River and had the Kosu River running through it. This fact will prove to be important when we study the book of Nain. Oops, I should have took that out. should have been a dot, dot, dot there. Its merchants traveled the empire and brought great wealth into the city, and Assyria's armies were feared everywhere. End quote. So again, imagine being sent to this city if you're Jonah. You don't want to go. You don't like the people. You're afraid, and you've got a lot of ground to cover. You've got a lot of walking to do. And there's a lot of people 600,000 of them there that you don't like, and they probably don't like you either. 
began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So Jonah takes his first day in Nineveh, not seeing the sights and getting a map of where the stars live, but he goes as far as he can into the city, a day's journey, walking for hours, calling out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now again, just picture him with his possibly bleached skin, this stranger in a strange land, and calling out that in a month and a half, this exceedingly great city shall be overthrown. Now I got questions here. Was this his whole message? Did he explain his origin? Did he talk about his trip into and then back out of the fish's guts? Did he talk about the true God, God's greatness and power? Did he talk about God's grace and willingness to forgive? Did he list the sins of Nineveh? Did he point to the skins on the wall? Oh no. We don't know. This is all that we're given. God had sent him to call out against Nineveh. And this message does that. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's all God gives us in the text, as far as what Jonah proclaimed. Now, that ain't much of a message, right? Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. What do we do to them? Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Is there anything we can do to stop it? Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. What's the matter with your skin? Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's all we see. So we don't know if he said anything else or not. But he definitely proclaimed the message that God had told him to proclaim. Seems pretty foolish. Doesn't it? So then what happened? Verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Huh. I guess if it works, it works, right? God can use the foolishness of preaching to save people, can he? God sends Jonah to call out against Nineveh. Jonah proclaims a simple message of woe and doom. Note that, by the way. And the people of Nineveh believed Jonah? Uh-uh. Look again. The people of Nineveh believed God. God's message came through God's messenger, and it's God that gets believed. How do we know that they believed? Well, okay, that makes sense to us. We're sorry. Their belief led to action. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Sackcloth and fasting were outward signs of grief and repentance. They had heard that God was going to overthrow their great city in 40 days and it moved them to sorrow for their acts and their deeds. It moved them to fear the judgment of God. So they stopped all that they were doing. They put on sackcloth and then rough burlap potato, potato sack, potato, potato. It's called holding on. Then rough burlap potato sackish stuff for the sackcloth. And they didn't eat nor did they drink. 
They grieved for their sinful ways from the greatest to the least of them. Now imagine this scene. I think this is as miraculous as the fish scene. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Oh, we are sorry. Sackcloth, fasting, not eating or drinking. We are sorry for who we are and for what we've done. And we fear the wrath of your God who is now our God. That's miraculous. They grieved for their sinful ways, from the greatest to the least of them. All the way to the top, as verse 6 shows us, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes, from the greatest to the least indeed. The king, who was probably Shalmaneser III, who would have, identified, who would have been identified by his kingly garments, heard of what was being proclaimed and done in the streets. And the man, the most powerful man in the world at that time, arose from his throne, his place of honor and power. He took off his kingly robe that identified him as royalty, and he covered himself in sackcloth, in grieving garments, and he sat in ashes, which was a sign of ultimate We don't get this. We don't see this. We can't picture this. We don't know the depths of this humiliation. We don't see and, and understand how sorry this meant that this king and these people were. We say we're sorry to God, and we should. But these evil, pagan, decapitating, skin-flaying people were sorry knew it, they said it, and they showed it with acts of repentance from the greatest to the least of them. And the king doesn't just do this. He makes it official, verses 7 and 8. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God, capital G, God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. So the actions of those who had heard the message of Jonah done, done voluntarily before are now commands from the king himself. He published a proclamation declaring with kingly authority that neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, were to eat or drink anything. And all, including the animals, were to be covered with sackcloth. And in the midst of their humiliation physical signs of grief and shame, they were to call out mightily to God. And the word for God here is Elohim, which can be a generic word for God, but this king is referring his people to Jonah's God due to the message that God had shared with them through his prophet. 
And then the edict said that all were to turn from his evil ways and from the violence, and we saw that they were pretty violent people, and from the violence that is in his hands. They were not just to put on a show of sorrow, they were to be sorry and show that by their attire, their posture, and their actions. That's true repentance. And why were they to do this, according to the king? Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. The king is hoping to preserve himself and his people from the wrath of God, who is being shown as the one, God is, who will overthrow this exceedingly great city because of their godless ways. And it seems that the king didn't know this God, his ways, and whether or not he would relent and turn from his fierce anger. Now note that. I think that's incredibly important. Because, again, the message didn't say, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, so repent so that God won't do this. The message was, doom is coming. 40 days is all you got. And after 40 days, you're done. And the king says, hey, maybe, maybe, maybe this God is merciful. Maybe this God will show us grace. Who knows? Let's give it a shot. Let's be sorry, show our sorrow, and stop what we were doing before. Maybe, just maybe. Who knows? Maybe God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. This king was afraid of dying at the hands of of this God who was proclaiming woe and judgment upon his kingdom. There was fear involved. Is fear a good motivator? We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Maybe. Who knows? He didn't know. They said, let's give it a shot. Because he also knew that they, the Ninevites, were not those who would normally relent and turn from their fierce anger. So God would have to do for them what they didn't do for each other or for other people. They knew fierce anger. They knew wrath and total annihilation. They specialized in it. But would this almighty God relent? Who knows, the king says. But he held out hope that it would happen. And they just might not perish. So were they truly sorry? Did their repentance reach the God of heaven and earth? Did it work? Verse 10. We need to bathe in these words. So when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. Did not do it. Those are staggering words in a lot of different ways. God had declared woe upon this city, upon these people. It was going to be overthrown because of the evil that they were doing, had done, and would do. Forty days and then a death sentence. But they changed 
They repented. They relented. They showed their sorrow. They showed grief over their evil. And they stopped doing what they had been doing. And when God saw what they said, and when God saw how they felt, no. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil, and that would have been mental, and that would have been emotional, and that would have been physical, when he saw that, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and God did not do that disaster. Now this verse screams at us from the pages of Scripture of the responsibility of man. I can say I'm sorry I don't want to say. I can feel as bad as I want to feel. But until I stop doing what I used to do, I'm not sorry. And when God decreed that they would stop doing what they were supposed to not be doing, then God turned from the disaster. No, no. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Parents, when kids ever tell you, tell you they're sorry, and you realize they're just sorry they got caught. They're not really sorry for what they did. They're just trying to avoid trouble. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Daddy. I'm sorry, Daddy. Are you? Why are you sorry? Because I don't want to spin my butt. That's all of us. Prove to me. Show me that you're sorry. Stop doing what you were doing. Change your mind about what you were doing. Don't feel the same about what you have been doing. Then I'll know that you're sorry. Words are cheap. Actions cost us a little bit more, don't they? There is a responsibility of man to stop sinning when God's salvation shows up. Now, let me speak to this a second. God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Let me ask you a question. Does God relent? Does God repent? Does God change? We talk of the immutability of God. And that means that God does not and cannot change. If he can change, he's not God. So does God change his mind? says he did. Well, let, me show you, let, me, let me throw the monkey wrench in here. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Numbers 23, 19 says. God is not a man that he should change his mind. God relented. Did God change his mind? In Nineveh? Now this is important. And we don't have an application point for us. So we're going to spend a little time here. Does God change or does God not change? 
The easy answer is no, God does not change. So what's going on here? God proclaimed, yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. They showed sorrow and repentance, and God didn't overthrow Nineveh. Did God change his mind? This is tough stuff. God did not change his mind. Let me read you a quote from R.C. Sproul. Obviously, God is omniscient. God is all-wise. God is eternal in his perspective and in his full knowledge of everything. So we don't change God's mind. But prayer changes things. It changes us. And there are times in which God waits for us to ask for things because his plan is that we work with him in the glorious process of bringing his will to pass here on earth. If you will remember, God had given Jonah a message way back in chapter 1, go to Nineveh and call out against them. And Jonah didn't want to go. Why? Not because he thought God would destroy him, but because he was afraid God would forgive him. Them. Him. Said him. He didn't go because he thought, God, you're going to show them grace. You're going to show them mercy. So what was God's goal in all of this? Was it to overthrow Nineveh? Oh, no. It was to save people. God said, go. Jonah said, no, you're going to forgive them, God. Run, 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 run. Splish, splash. Gulp. Vomit. Now go, Jonah. Okay. And I just know you're going to forgive him. I know you're going to. But wait, if you don't know this story, if you haven't read it, don't read chapter 4 until next week. It's amazing. Jonah knew God was going to forgive him. That's why he didn't want to go. So God relented. He didn't destroy them, but instead he showed them grace, which was always his plan. God didn't change. God's will was accomplished because his goal was to forgive the people of Nineveh. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? God had people in Nineveh and he was going to rescue them. Even further than that, he was going to rescue them through the mouth of the words that Jonah shared. It wasn't going to be through anybody else. God didn't have a plan B. God doesn't have a plan B. Ever. I love it when we get around Christmas time. What if Mary had said no to the angel? Stop it. She wasn't going to say, no, I'm not doing that. Find somebody else. It wasn't going to happen. Because God's plan was for Mary to carry the Messiah in her belly. God's plan here was for Nineveh to repent. And that's exactly what happened. God didn't change his mind. God didn't change his plan. He changed his prophet. And that's what God does. He had said, go to Nineveh. He didn't say go to Nineveh if you want to. God had a plan and purpose for Jonah going to Nineveh. So ultimately, again, this makes this all about God. Not Jonah. 
not the, even the Ninevites. It makes it about God and God's plan. Spurgeon said the life of Jonah, and I'd say the book of Jonah, cannot be written without God. Take God out of the prophet's history and there's no history. If not for God, we don't know Jonah. If not for God, the Ninevites don't repent. If not for God, you don't repent. Even when it seems like he's changing, God is sovereign. I stopped quoting Spurgeon at the end of right, by the way. You're not putting me God is directing all of this from start to finish. There's no book of Jonah. There's no Ninevite repentance without the work and oversight of God. And the same can be said of our lives. Are you afraid that God's going to change his mind about you? He don't do that, y'all. He can't change. He who began a good work in you will perfect it, Philippians 1, 6 says. He don't get in the middle of it and say, you know what, this isn't worth it. But he does change his people. And that's good news. So that's the end of chapter 3. It's pretty quick, right? Well, we got some. We need to observe what God did in chapter 3, like we've done with chapters 1 and 2. And at the end of chapter 4, we'll compile a whole list of what God did in the book of Jonah. But in chapter 3, these are the things that the scripture says God did. God gave his word to Jonah a second time. And then we see a lot of activity between Jonah and the Ninevites. The next thing that we see God doing is God saw what the Ninevites did. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And God did not do the disaster. That's chapter 3, God did. Keep that in mind. We'll get we'll, we'll we'll compile this list next week. I think it's pretty interesting when you see it in totality. But for us, let's turn to application. I don't know that I've ever had this letter before. This may be a new thing. Three G's. It's not like it is a G thousand grand, right? Not three thousand. Three G's. Grace, grief, and gospel. And that's, that's, that's pretty good. Grace, grief, and gospel. That's some good things to talk about. Grace. God gave Jonah a mulligan. God gave the Ninevites a mulligan. Let's start over. Let's do it again. What you have been doing is not the right thing. Stop it. Quit it. Try again. Start over. The word of the Lord came a second time to Jonah. God relented of the disaster that he said he would do. God loves to show us grace. We talked about this a couple Wednesdays ago. And one of the statements that was made that night was, as much as we love receiving grace, listen, more than that, God loves to show us grace. God loves to give us a chance to start over. God met Jonah. We don't know where the great fish had deposited Jonah. But we do 
know that wherever Jonah was, the Lord was there, Warren Wiersbe says. Remember, God is more concerned about his workers than he is about their work. For if the workers are what they ought to be, the work will be what it ought to be. Throughout Jonah's time of rebellion, God was displeased with his servant, but he never once deserted him. It was God who controlled the storm, prepared the great fish, and rescued Jonah from the deep. His promise is, I will never leave you nor forsake you. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Where is this? It's not just grace to start over. It's grace in the midst of wherever you're at. Grace in the midst of whatever you're doing. And we talked about this last time. We don't have to hesitate to come to God when we're in our sin. It's then that we need to come to Him most of all. Why? Because He loves to show us grace. God loves to show grace to repentant people. John, in the introduction to his gospel... Is trying to explain who Jesus is and what he was like. Watch this. And the Word, capital W Word, became flesh, speaking of Jesus. And that Word dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. And what's that glory look like? He's full of grace and truth. Part of the very glory of God. It's grace. We look at this in depth on Wednesday nights. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. You want to know who God is? You want to know what God looks like? You want to see the glory of God? Look at grace. Grace. Oh, we sing about it. Oh, we talk about it. Have you beheld the glory of God? And have you praised Him to the praise of His glorious grace. God wanted to make Himself known, so He showed us grace. Undeserved favor. Unmerited favor. Nothing you could ever earn or deserve. God lavishes upon us freely so that we can know who He is and what He's like. He shows it to disobedient prophets. He shows it to violent pagans. He shows it to me and to you. So what's the application point for grace? Look at it. Behold it. Bathe in it. And see the glory of God through it. Nothing shows us and tells us who God is better than grace. Think about that. Grief. Let me ask you something. If you get something that you don't deserve and could never earn, how should you respond to that which is the opposite of that in your life? No big deal. Nonchalant. Thanks God for grace. Appreciate it. It is the grace.
grace of God that multiplies the grief over sin in my life. Now be careful here. We're very quick, just like a bunch of kids, to show grief or to be sorry for the consequences of our sin. And sin always has consequences. But we should be as grieved, or more so, over the presence of the sin itself. And if you were here last week, we talked about you don't have to be sorry enough for your sin to be forgiven for it. You don't have a penalty box. You don't have to drum up a bunch of grief so that God will forgive you. And that's true. You're never going to be sorry enough to make God forgive you. Remember, grace. Free grace. But I'm going to ask you a question. This is not about receiving forgiveness because the forgiveness is ours through the finished work of Christ, which we've sung about, talked about, come to the table about, listened about today. But here's the question. Does sin grieve you? And not just the sins of other people. Does your sin grieve you? Are you sorry? Am I sorry when we do sin? And do we come to this table week in and week out and see the great price that bought our forgiveness and remain unmoved in our emotions about the whole deal? Because if there's no grief over your sin, you're not sorry. You say, well, how sorry do I have to be? We've covered that. Again, that was last week. You don't have to be sorry enough to receive forgiveness. But when you receive forgiveness, you will be sorry enough. You've given me all things pertaining to life and godliness. He's lavished upon us every spiritual blessing. He's placed us in Christ. He's loved us with a love that will never change. He will never leave us nor forsake us. So how then could sin not grieve us? Because here's the deal, beloved. It grieves God. Not to the point of sorry that He saved us. Thank goodness. Thank God. But it's an affront to the very nature and person of a holy God. And it robs us of our joy and fellowship with Him. Nothing can take you out of the hand of God that holds you almightily within itself. Nothing. Not even your sin. But while in that hand, if you freely choose sin and are unmoved by that, I would really question the sincerity and the truth of your salvation. Sin should grieve us. And if we can lazily lounge around here today and be unmoved by our sins in the midst of our salvation, we've got to ask ourselves, do I really know what sin is? And do I really know what this salvation is? Are we sorry when we do sin? We can't be all laughs and whoopsies and OLs when we sin. I messed up. Oops. Well, I fell again. Oops, I slipped. Oh, made a mistake. No, you sinned. And sin is an affront to a holy God. And if it doesn't produce sorrow, you don't know what that sin is. In the Old Testament, Joel chapter 2, Yet even now, 
declares the Lord. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Doesn't send the disaster that he pronounces because he wants to change us in the midst of it and he wants us to grieve over our sin and see the great forgiveness that he offers freely through the finished work of Jesus Christ. I said a prayer one time. I walked an aisle one time. I filled out a card one time. I got baptized. I give money to the church. I don't care. God doesn't care if there's not genuine grief and sorrow over your sins. New Testament. Submit yourselves therefore to God, James says. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, he says to the church that he's writing to. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. It is all grace. Praise God for that. But that grace should move us to mourn over our sin. There should be grief over our disobedience to the Almighty God, who should let us rot in hell for eternity. And if there's not, I would say get on your face and ask God to make you sorry for your sins. You're like, that's just the opposite of what you said last week. No, it's not. You don't have to be sorry enough, but you do have to be sorry. And if you're not sorrow, there's no fruit of repentance in your life. And if there's no fruit of repentance, let me tell you, you're not saved. If your affections about your sins haven't changed, you're not saved. So come to Him with your sin. Weep over it. And joyously receive the salvation that is shown through the grace of God. For you're still in your sins. Now, watch this. Grace and grief, and the last point is gospel. God gave Jonah a message to carry. What's he done for us? He has given you, Christian, the message to carry. And in that message is the ultimate mulligan. We have a message in the gospel that we can offer people a real chance to start over we're not waiting on a new message or a different message from God. God has commanded that we share the message of his gospel everywhere that we go. In all that we do, we are to be proclaiming the gospel with words. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's what we do. We teach them the gospel. 
And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. That's Matthew. Mark. And he said to them, go into the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Luke. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance, well there's that word, for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and we can include Acts in that Acts 1.8. That Jesus' last command was to go out and share the gospel. Why? Because, Romans 1, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, for it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And contained in that gospel is a proclamation of the grace of God for repentant sinners who are grieving over their sins and their helpless state that they cannot save themselves, but that God came in the form of a man, God in the flesh, God the Son, who lived a perfect life and who submitted himself to death so that upon a Roman cross, God could pour out the wrath against your sins upon his Son, he could absorb that wrath. He would die. He would be buried. Three days later, he would be resurrected. He would show himself alive over a period of 40 days to over 500 people. And then he would ascend on high and be seated at the right hand of the majesty of God, having sat down, having accomplished the work that God sent him to do. And if you will place your faith in the glorious grace showed through the work and life of Christ, you will be Saved. Nothing else can save you apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing. So can I be sorry enough? Not without the grace of God. Not without the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are his prophets now. The message that he has sent us to proclaim whether it be in Beckley or Kabul or Greece or Italy or Rome or South America or Africa or the North Pole, the message is the gospel, the finished work of Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for your sins. And that salvation is by grace, through faith, to the praise of that glorious grace. What are you doing with that message, church? What are you doing with your sin? Father, we thank you that you have chosen in your secret counsels, in your mysteries, you have chosen to save people by faith in your grace. And you've chosen to use us to share that message. For in the gospel, Paul would say, the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And as it is written, that we saw at the end of chapter 2 last week, salvation belongs to God. Father, would you grant life to dead people this morning? 
Would you raise to life dead sinners? Would you produce in them a godly grief for their sin and show them the glorious grace of the finished work of Jesus Christ? And would you set us all on a mission, God, to proclaim this glorious gospel to the ends of the earth until the end of time? So that you might receive the praise and the glory that is due to you. God, make it so in us. May we see your grace. May we grieve our sins and proclaim your gospel. And may the world see it in us and through us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive the benediction? Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed. Stay in England so you can, though.